Yes, hello, <laughs> welcome to Sonic Talk number 403. Thank you very much for sticking with us all this time. Uh, we have multiple guests. This is the show where we talk about all things music, technology and related, in case you haven't seen this before. Also, again, if this is perhaps your first time, we do recommend that you uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. Um, there are buttons around here. This video will end up on YouTube if you're listening to the MP3 version. Check over our uh, Sonic State channel on YouTube and you can subscribe to all our stuff. Sonic Talk is just one of the many videos that we've got coming up. This goes weekly. Uh, and I want to say thank you very much to all our listeners and, and hello to all our new discovering listeners, if that's such a thing. That sounds like a bit of a, uh, an open-ended sentence. Anyway, I also want to say thank you very much to our chat room. We have plenty of people in there as usual uh, because, again, if you're listening to the MP3 version, this streams live on video and there is a chat room you can participate in. Uh, which we find very stimulating, very helpful, and it kind of adds a little extra frisson to the whole thing. We very much appreciate all the people who give up their their time to join us, including my panellists as well. Uh, before I get onto those, I want to say thank you to Isotope, who are sponsors of the show. Uh, we will be announcing the winner of the competition for last week, because every week while they're joining their sponsorship, they've been giving away something. Last week was Ozone 6.1, and I will announce the winner, and it will also be a chance to win Ozone this week too, so stay tuned for that. Right, let's go into our guests. Uh, we'll start over in Bristol, I think, where we have Mr. Gaz Williams, fresh from the triumph of his Rumbelo gigs that I saw at my local boozer <laughs> on Saturday night, which was great fun. Oh, How yeah, are you, good. Gaz? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for coming down. It was, uh, it was pretty short notice. <laughs> yes. Um, but I'm only yeah, a good. few minutes away, so it was really no problem. Yeah, we had a... Um... We had a, a weekend of gigging, which was which was fun with the Rumbelows. Uh, that's the surf band. Um, some of you might remember, but um, yeah, we did another of the endless summer shows on uh, Sunday. That's the uh, the live soundtrack. To that's the, right. That's the where uh, yeah you, you you did a you attempted a live stream of uh, some numbers at your last gig at the Cube, didn't you? Which was uh, awesome. <laughs> awesome on so many levels for even attempting <laughs> it. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, good. That was really good. We uh, yeah. We haven't we haven't played for about five months because uh, Andy, the guitarist, has been touring in America with the uh, National Theatre of Scotland, which he's just come back from. So it's nice to get the to get the old band rolling again. Yeah, but he had a beautiful uh, Gretsch White Falcon with gold mm. spangly <laughs> bits, and I have to say that it sounded. It was going into a Vox AC30, which I think was the Bruno edition, which we've got a kind of formalised version here, and it sounded absolutely flipping amazing i mean i, I was yeah. just blown away by some of those sounds really really beautiful yeah he's a he's a fantastic guitarist and but that was his treat he bought that when he was out in the states and um i think uh yeah well deserved yeah <laughs> definitely and a great gig as well but uh yeah thank you very much for joining us and i, I forgot to say gaz is of course uh Oops, no, not Gaz. Gaz is there. Professional bass player, music technologist, uh, producer, mastering engineer, all of those things. A man of many talents, as mm. is indeed uh, a guest of the other side of the pond, Mr. Rich Hilton, over there in Connecticut. Uh, keyboard player with Chic, studio guy, guitarist, keyboard player, many things, Rich. Have I missed anything? Um, I, we would have to check with my wife. Ah, on okay. The ones, on the ones you missed. 
Ah, okay. Well, I will. Uh, uh, maybe we can get her to write you a resume that I could read out. Maybe a short paragraph each week. I'm not, sh- I'm not <laughs> sure we want to do that. No, I'm just. Kidding. No, uh, I, 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 I'm pretty sure we probably won't actually. But uh, that, that's okay. If she wants to send me some pointers, I'm quite happy to. But anyway, Rich, nice to have you. Um, looks like Thank the sun's you. shining there. Have you had a busy week? Uh, yes, yes, I've had a busy week, and uh, it's all good. Great, glad to hear it. Okay, and we'll also go over to Mark Tinley, uh, a man of many haircuts, uh, ah. a very different haircut. You go from the, the volume of hair that you get through every month must be so enormous. Have you got like a button on your back that allows it to grow out of the top of your head like those dolls from the 1970s? <laughs> that would be good. It stopped growing on the top of my head, though, unfortunately. It was a sort of a, you know. Yeah, welcome. Welcome to my world. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I, I don't know. It's... Uh, it's getting there, I suppose. Um, what am I meant to say? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Uh, Mark, Mark Tinley, of course, sound designer, uh, sound artist, uh, creative thinker, and um, uh, doing a lot of video digitizing at the moment, I, I, I hear. I am. I'm, well, yeah, theoretically. I've, I've discovered that uh, domestic video players play VHS tapes by looking at the time code in a very broad way and they blur everything so um trying to get better quality i brought this bought a broadcast machine and now i've discovered that um they drop frames left right and center and and you get lines going up and down the screen and all sorts of stuff so and i'm capturing uh pal uh at 25 frames per second uncompressed because i don't want to add any um uh, noise or anything to this it. is presumably so you're just archiving some old vhs stuff is it 70 i'm going at, at at the moment i think i'm going at something like uh 70 gigabytes a minute or something i mean it's huge yeah you could probably drop that a little bit because it's only giga, five just over a gig a second it's so oh really that sounds a bit high to me to be honest um just purely well, because i'm not compressing it at all but it, it looks truly awful because the the thing that's capturing it uh, just drops frames left, right, and centre. So I'm getting all flashes and things going across the screen. So I've ordered a time-based corrector to fix that. Uh, so and I've got a new computer to do it, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I've ordered 70 terabytes of hard drives. Wow, uh, big project to c- capture all this stuff. So yeah, it's but it's not an easy project. It's off to a very slow and. Uh, <coughs> kind of difficult start i'm really wrestling with that actually i just assumed i'd just plug this stuff together and bush it would just go and i figured yeah i just have to just go up in quality a bit from my because the way i norm i used to do it is i'd get my dv cam and i'd plug a vhs machine in the side of the dv dv cam and just fa- capture it via firewire which looks all right um, but i thought well maybe i should go a step better than uh, dv um, that's not a bad thought though because it's only i mean you've got to bear in mind i know this is not particularly audio tech but it's certainly something that somebody may if you're working in the industry you, they might get asked to do um it's not yeah. a bad idea because firewire still give you uh i mean we capture about i mean video on our on these video camera like this video camera is around about 17 mega um megabits per second Right. So, uh, and and full broadcast is somewhere in the region of twenty four. When you get higher up, if you're talking AVC, if you're talking completely un- uncompressed, then it's enormous amounts. It's like eighty megs a second, something like that. Yeah, but, I'm going for eight bit YUV uncompressed, and then I thought, oh, maybe I should go for ten bit. And then I just I yeah. discovered that the only people who use ten bit 
are people who are shooting blockbuster movies. Yeah. I, I, I thought, actually, since it's coming off VHS, it probably doesn't matter. No. And, then and if the it's VHS, it won't actually have that higher colour space anyway, to be honest. No. The thing defaults to capturing the audio at 32-bit. <laughs> and I'm not going, I'm capturing analogue VHS audio, and it's trying to capture it at 32-bit. So I've restrained it a bit. And, wow. Uh, I thought 16-bits is definitely enough for capturing analogue. Well, there we go. It's so, like um, cassette, isn't it? It's a, it's as yeah. good quality as an audio cassette, basically. Even the SVHS stuff sounds horrible. But yeah. Anyway, it's good. It's all good fun. It's a good. It, you it's know, nice to have a challenge in life, isn't it? Some, yeah, something exactly. New, exactly nice, I completely nice much like one of my challenges at the moment because, uh, as you know, I've just had this uh, um, um, Behringer X Air Thirty Two. And I've been trying to think of ways that I can just sort of jam synths into my world and just play. And you know what? It's actually much, much harder than I thought it was, particularly when you want to use any sort of clocking. So I thought I'll just use live. I'll use Ableton Push and I'll be able to go. I'll just record a loop from maybe an arpeggiator or something and then hit, hit you know, no new pattern or new track and then and over to, and Honestly, it is just proving to be like an IT nightmare because MIDI clocking of sequences and arpeggiators is not all that firm and it, once you start getting into the i need to figure out the tempo of this before i can start looping i need to know the tempo of, it's all it, it all becomes a little less enjoyable as a process to be perfectly honest and i i was wondering if anyone had any suggestions and i know gaz you've mm. you prop you've been working on the notion of these standalone workstations for actually creative stuff so i thought i might pick your brains about this and mm. i'm sure our other guests might have uh, some suggestions too what, yeah. do, what should it's, i do it's a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I've been a similar. I've been in very much in a similar boat and have been eyeing up the XR18 for exactly the same purpose, really. Um, and it does get confusing, doesn't it, in terms of uh, which way you send things out and about. I, I think the thing I'm going to get, I think, is a, a through box. Um, I think to just just to duplicate MIDI and send it everywhere, uh, everywhere. Hmm. yeah, and then just send the devices on to different MIDI channels. Um, but gosh, I'm part of the problem I have is I'm chopping and changing things so much that I find it really hard to kind of commit to a single way of working. Yeah. Um, but the the thing that's very attractive to me about that Behringer XR18 though is just that amount of inputs you know because the when i well let me just count how many inputs that i would need one two three more more than it's got i'm imagining yeah at, at least 16 so yeah so it, that's got 18 inputs hasn't it and um yeah, and it's got 18 I.O. as well as uh, on USB, so you can route things all over the place. But that's not really my my problem. Is more to do with the fact that I just want to cut. Oh, this is good, right? I want to play that, loop it, and get on. But as soon as you if if you start with nothing, like no tempo or anything, and I've got the sequencer running, say in the sub 37, and I go, oh yeah, this is nice. I've got a bit of effects going. I go right, record that now overdub. It's just like hold on, I need to stop. I need to get the clock sorted out. I need to make sure that the mm. clock is working. And it's just gone. Everything's gone, and it, it it really is quite frustrating because, in many ways, I'm trying to I'm looking to to get off grid and simplify my whole creative process so that I can just sort of record what's in here, 
into a computer with a minimum amount of stuff yeah. in the way, you know, and that I, I never thought I'd be doing this because, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm editor of a music technology site. I should be able to do this. I've been working <laughs> in the DAW for many years and, you know, I'm, I'm used to the grid, I, but I don't want drums and I don't want that side of things. really. Yes. In Ableton Live, though, you can set any clip to be like a master that, that then that would be the, the tempo master. So ah. if you did reports, Record be... something, and then everything else. Then uh, I think I'd have to. Um, I'd have to just check on that. But that's I interesting. Think... I don't know if that's accessible via push, but I, I'm looking at sort of alternative mm. ways as well. I know, Rich. I don't know if you, you know, because you've played a few little ditties and bits and bobs that you've done with, you know, the iPad and stuff. I mean, it's interesting that if you have to start with this sort of tempo and decide if you're going to use drums. What I mean, if you're noodling, what do you do? And then you think, well, actually, I want to maybe formalise that a bit more. Is there a kind of tried and tested method that you use for that kind of workflow? Yes, but it, I'm sorry. I got it. Yeah. All right. It doesn't necessarily involve this sort of synchronization issues you're dis- discussing because my stuff tends to work in the box mostly. Right. So I'm not synchronizing clocks outside of that box very often to what's going on in the box. And typically if I am and I experience any kind of issues with it at all, I'll just print whatever it is and grid it that way as audio. So it's because I don't want to spend a lot of time like you troubleshooting why it's not syncing up as perfectly as I'd like. I just like to get the thing in and get it synced up. I think I think that's right. That works very well with a single instrument maybe or you know something maybe you've got physically more than one instrument you're playing simultaneously and you can record multiple audio streams that's no problem but if you sort of go actually now i want to overdub on that it all starts to get oh now i need to get over in i mean if i suppose if you're working in a loop rather than in a continuous right. take which might be something that you would do more of as you're you know more of a less of a maybe a pattern based guy more of a you you're, you have more playing ability than i do i suspect in that sense yeah but i i take a long time to get the part right too i mean just like everybody else it's not it's not like i sit down and they just come pour anatomy perfectly the first time every time what? um no <laughs> say it's not uh, true rich no it's true but um but the point is it uh i mean from a creative standpoint you establish some form of a workable tempo whether it turns out to be your final tempo or not you um you know, some sort of rhythmic basis, whatever it needs to be. If you're not sure about whether or not it should be drums, and assuming it's not a string quartet being played freely, yeah, then um, then uh, you work to some kind of tempo as you develop the most primary section of your piece, hopefully first, and then you move on to the other sections. I mean, it it sort of at, at that point writes itself. If you can establish the first section as being where something, you start, you know, yeah. cool. Yeah. And then you try to find a second section that's cool and you decide their relative relationships with each other and you try it various ways and you pull things out and you try building it different ways. And then yeah, you write I, 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 I you write an intro. Yeah. Next thing you know, you need a bridge and uh, pretty soon you have a song. That's true. I suppose what I'm trying to do is, is uh, not do that and i don't know how to work without doing that if that's uh, if that's a if that seems a bit weird maybe it's too free form i don't know gas sorry yes well well i'm running the sync pulse uh for a lot of the a lot of what i'm doing so using the the volkers and actually the little pocket operators and the korg sq1 they all they're all great for um <laughs> so the pulse is always the pulse is always going so so when you noodle on things it always stays in 
in sync. Right. Um, and the way I've got it working is I've got it all going into this uh, little Allen and Heath desk, and then that's USB'd into an iPad. And you just catch it. Loopy. Right. Yeah, and then it's got a little record button. So, I, I mean, it's only a sing, it's only a stereo USB desk, that is. So I, 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 I'm only just uh, pressing in the record button for one element at a time. Um, but what's quite nice is everything is running. I've got everything. Ah, but yeah, running. but okay. So then, what you do is when you've got one loop running and you want to overdub something else, presumably you're monitoring that loop through the USB desk as well. Yeah. So I then, am. what happens? Don't you get sound on sound? You need busing for that to to, to then occur. You know, so that you it's, don't over record. You record over it again, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean it works quite well. I mean, Loopy has only got twelve stereo loops. That, That's fine. That you, can, that you can use, but um, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, I just. I don't know. I find, I think it's quite it's quite a nice way of working because um, you know I, I, I I'll set it off. Everything starts running, so I get my basic idea on the go, and then I think, okay, because uh, like things like the Volkers, for instance, you know, you're just dealing with a with a one bar loop, and that gets boring and repetitive very quickly. So what will happen is I've got everything going on. I I, I say maybe knock the Volker bass channel into record, and then I'll just spend. I don't know, maybe 16 bars making tinkering with it, tinkering. Yeah. And then, and then I'll just stop that and it'll just start playing back from loopy. And then I'll go on to another of the devices, pop that into record, start tinkering with that for, right. And then you build it up that way. That's interesting. I did think about loopy. And one thing I would say is, like I said, I, I, the only problem is I don't have any iPad spare iPads here at the moment, but the uh, X air does actually give you 18 IO just plugged directly into the iPad. So it's, it works that way. Mm. Mark, how about you? I mean, you, you, you know, when you're presumably, I know you're a fan of speedy workflows and just getting the idea out there with what, I mean, you work in, in sort of traditional DAW sense. Do you start with a rhythm and then kind of work to that tempo or do you like to, be a bit more freeform to begin with i usually start um bashing something out on a guitar and then i might record it into my phone and then i send the audio file to myself and either stick it in logic but more often now i'm going into ableton because i it's quicker to just put markers in things and drag them around as loops but i don't think i ever really think outside of about probably eight bar sections so i tend to record everything in chunks so i got i i don't know how i would solve your problem because you want to take things that are really long don't you and then have something the next thing in sync somehow and i, I just kind of i overlay things in my head and think about how they're going to work together and then i and then i um if I've got another, I mean, I drag in other pieces of music or other things and then i'll find loop points in them and then i'll uh just Repitch them or drag them into Ableton on, uh, you know, on uh, everything's loops, and then eventually, once I've worked out how um, how it's going to become a song, I'll put the loops all, all the loops into patterns, and then I'll go through the patterns and construct the arrangement and then once i've done the arrangement i'll start fixing stuff up and re-recording stuff and right so there's there's a sort of splurging out the creative stuff phase and then a fixing phase yeah right of course my you know what has to the way i get things in time is i'm playing things on the guitar more often than not not right 
Um, so I don't have any singing. Well, I do actually. I have terrible <laughs> singing issues. I can't play in time, but uh, I, I don't have anything that I can't correct. Ah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Okay, well, I'll, I'll try. So, I've still got. I, I think the thing is for me is it's been such a long time since I've had a working creative setup. I'm trying to create one that I think will suit what I'm because what I want to try and do is be able to, you know, like the, some of the little synth jams I've been putting at the end of my reviews, which are free form and open. I've sort of wanted to maybe think about progressing those and then going oh if i could just add something on top of that where are you getting your tempo from then uh well Whatever. quite often it's an lfo or it's uh it's just a, a an arpeggiator oh, right. or something I don't know I how many bpm it is without yeah if you drag things into lo- if you drag things well logic or ableton if you drag things into ableton you just put markers on and it works out the bpm for you and you know and then you just tell it loop this bit and uh it if you put it in the time stretch one of the time stretch yeah. pro or something it just does it all for you i suppose that's it the way annoys it. me in one sense because i used to be very clever and used to work all this stuff out with calculators <laughs> go, people would go how on earth did you do that and i go it's obvious the sample rate's forty-four thousand one hundred, and it's so many <laughs> <laughs> everyone would be like sick there going like wow but now it just does it all for you so i yeah. don't get any Going wow! <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember so when you told me that. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome, isn't it? Oh, I remember the days when you know you had your own special little piece of paper which had your delay times in milliseconds that you whip out and go. Oh, I think I'll try this one. And you know, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Now that uh, obviously time division, but that's if you're again, you know, you need to be working on the grid for that to happen. I sort of, I sort of don't want to work on the grid, and I think that's partly my problem, really. Well, you can do that. Yeah. And they, but you got to spend a long time tempo mapping after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah which can be done. Can. And and uh, but the problem with piling things on top of tracks that are not performed at least reasonably to a consistent tempo is the um, discrepancies become more obvious the more people pile onto them. The, what makes the discrepancies cool is the way they interact with each other in real time when there are multiple people playing. But when you have, say, one person playing a piano part, which has various tempo fluctuations along the way, and you map all those tempo fluctuations and you start tracking things on top of where those occurred, the fluctuations become more glaring. There's nothing to counterbalance them. They mm. don't exist in a context where there's, like, there's tension. You know like, what I'm saying? Like I feel love. I feel love is like that. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so. It doesn't so. have many parts, but, but it, if you listen to the hi-hat in the 12-inch version, it's horrendous. It goes like about half a beat off. Well, it's the vibe, isn't it? That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the vibe. But anyway. <laughs> no, you can do that. But it's, Yeah, I suppose so. I, I, there's I, some warnings there. It depends on what you want to do it for. Yeah, like I do certain things as exercises, and certain things as what well, well, what they used to call in the classical world etudes, and certain other things as working towards a finished piece of music. And the etudes are sort of meant for me to be working out things, technical issues or musical issues that I want to express that may not have anything to do with some larger context pop song concept. And then when it comes time to like you know earn a living, I sit down to write. You know, I try to sit down and write a song. Right, oh, I'll you check that. Uh, Peter Chicago, Peter, sorry, on Peter Chicago, Chicago in the chat room says, Sync Gen 2, can I review this? Uh, that sounds like it might be something I need to check out. And there are various boxes that allow you to sync all of this stuff up, I suppose. And so, uh, yeah, maybe I need to look into that because I, I find it uh, just, you know, it's, it becomes IT and less, and less. I've got one last thing to say okay. about this. 
Um, well, well, one is that I've got two last things to say about that. <laughs> one of them is like with Rich, I do a lot of what Rich does, which is like mucking around with stuff, experimenting, just trying to see what happens when I do this with this. And I've got hundreds of so-called songs. They're not songs you know ideas like that which i should really throw away because they're like sketches i suppose and they don't mean anything to anyone but me but then further down the line somebody will go to oh is it possible to do blah 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 and i go oh when i was experimenting with that thing i know that if i do this and this then i can try that and i will you know use one of those experiments in a later context and uh, it'll be useful for something and then the other thing i want to say is do you really need to overdub as many things as you think you need to overdub? Because if you're experimenting with synths and you're making experimental synth music and you've got a layer of stuff going on. I remember when I first started doing stuff that I had an SH-101, a drum machine, an electric guitar and me singing. And I used to construct lots of stuff with harmonies, backing vocals. And then the SH-101 was my bass line. The guitar played the lead and maybe I played a, a fretless bass as well actually and the drum machine was fairly simple and it sounded really good and now I just keep layering stuff on top of stuff on top of stuff on top of stuff and it doesn't do anything for the music it kind of just turns into a dirge mm. well maybe, so maybe dirge is what I'm looking for <laughs> maybe you're close but maybe you're close closer than, than i think, think with your starting point yeah that's a, that's a, point, that's and a you fair don't need point to layer as many as many things yeah maybe you're right then I, I i was thinking of an analogy though of like uh going to the computer is a little bit like a condom putting a condom on it's a passion killer <laughs> the moment gets disturbed and i agree actually Yes, I, I, I the whole thing of trying to, you know, I've got the thing running in my head. I'm strumming on the guitar. I've got like this whole vibe going and then trying to find the tempo by tapping on a bloody mouse button. Like, tch, 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 tch. I'm getting there. Yeah, I think I've got the tempo now. The moment you put it in the computer, it becomes much less fluid. And then the ideas start to disappear because there's mm. too many options in the computer sometimes. And, and I get sidetracked. I think, uh, Gaz, you just caused puddles to spill the tea, whoever that is. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yes. <laughs> anyway, well, let's move on. I think, actually, well, that's, that's taken us uh, to a, a, a fine point. Perhaps uh, talk about our sponsors and uh, bring the competition results. So uh, let's go. If I press the button, the ad usually plays, but sometimes it takes a while to get going. As in today. Ah, here we go. Isotope Ozone 6.1, as we know, the latest update to Isotope's, well, it's a sort of, it's a, a, a world-class mastering suite. We've got key features of uh, equalizer, dynamics, maximizer, exciter, imager, post equalizer, dither, and dynamic EQ, which is advanced only. Harness the sonic texture of classic analog gear, even deeper digital control. Make smarter mix decisions aided, aided by robust visual feedback throughout the modules, and you can achieve authentic sounds at any genre with a comprehensive bank of presets. And in fact, they've also, there's loads and loads of tutorials and ways to use Isotope Iris, uh, sorry, Ozone 6.1. Really worth checking out. Uh, and as ever, comes with a 10-day free trial. Uh, isotope.com forward slash ozone is the place to do it. And of course, uh, we have a competition. But first, we should get to the results of last week. Last week, we asked you to tweet uh, Promaster, the hashtags Promastering and Ozone 6. 
And uh, we've picked a winner this week. Uh, the winner is we had a lot of people entering last week, actually. I think maybe because it was a switch over to a new product uh, uh, or something like that, but uh, quite a bumper entries. Anyway, the winner is called Ian J. Cole, and he's got the hash at uh, the Twitter handle at Ian J. Cole, all one word. And he tweeted, I uh, didn't get any extra comments, but he's the guy who won. So if you let me know, we'll have the uh, the new Isotope Ferry. We'll be able to send you the um, the codes and the download links and all of those things. But we've got another competition this week. You can also win Isotope 6.1. And what I'm looking for, I, have I spelt finalise right? I think it's got a Z in it. That just looks wrong to me. Anyway, we, you can win Isotope 6.1, Ozone 6.1 for yourself. Uh, all you need to do, you need to be on Twitter. You need to tweet this, which is what I'm highlighting. If you're listening in audio, it's the hashtag finalize the mix with a Z. That's how I'm going to spell it this week. And the hashtag ozone six to at Sonic State and at Isotope Inc. And we will monitor the Twitter sphere and uh, then pick a winner from the uh, the search results that we find uh, from via random number generator. So the winner will win Ozone 6.1. So once again, we thank Isotope for sponsoring the show. Right, let's have a look now. Uh, well, oh, this is cool. Now, this is a, a video posted by uh, Apogee, and this is... Let me see if I can get this going. So this is... Yeah, I might maybe be able to make this... Ah, but I should probably do that. This is Bob Clear Mountain in the studio. Uh, and Matt Chamberlain playing the drums. This is the Glyn Johns method. He's using an Apogee quartet, which is hence it's on the Apogee site. Now for this configuration, we have a bigger kit. It's more like a 70s rock kit, sort of in the vibe of John Bonham from Led Zeppelin. We have four mics instead of two mics or some because we're recording an Apogee quartet. To start with, I'm, I'm actually using a system that I've read about that a friend of mine, Glenn Johns, used to use in the, in the 60s and the 70s for um, Led Zeppelin and The Who and The Rolling Stones and people, people like that. And this is, he was one of those guys that when I was a kid, I wanted to be him or I wanted to meet him and I wanted to understand who, what he did. And back then I had no clue, but in later days I found out that he, this is something like, it's probably not exactly what he did, but he would use two Neumann large diaphragm condenser microphones. These are U87s. And I've actually measured the, the distance between the diaphragm and the rack tom. It's 31 inches from there to there, and it's also 31 inches between the left one and the floor tom tom. And it's also e an e equidistant between the cymbals too, between this ride cymbal. So this mic over here picks up the ride and the floor tom. This picks up the cymbal and the rack tom. Uh, this is this is quite an interesting uh, technique. I mean, I know I, I think uh, Gaz has spoken about it before, and I th I'm pretty sure that uh, Rich has used his technique as well. It, interesting variation there. Bob Clear Mountain, sort of legendary 80s and 90s mastering. He was one of the first guys who did like uh, drum libraries and stuff. And his sound. I mean, he was he's one of the one of, and I, I, I I'm not sure if I got this right. One of the sort of the first examples of the kind of superstar engineer slash producer that everybody seemed to know the name of i don't know if that's that's the case some slight variations in that technique though rich from because i saw another one which was equidistance you put from the snare so then you get it and i don't know do, do you use this method for recording yourself obviously there's a spot mic on the snare and the kick drum in his in bob clear mountain's particular one i don't usually record drums with just four microphones um but the principles that he 
espouses in this and in the two microphone video, which he has also done where he does the same deal with a duet and two microphones. Um, the principles are basically the same, which is that the sound of the kit is best captured at some distance overhead in general and supplemented with the close mics, which in the case of the kick drum, you would absolutely need. And he discusses in this video how in Glenn John's case, they actually used three mics. There was the two overheads and a kick mic, but uh, later, uh, you know, the opportunity to have a snare mic increased the ability to present the snare. And Bob talks about having to go back and mix uh, old Rolling Stone stuff where the snare wasn't as present as he would like. And he had to do certain things to try to bring it out more. Um, but the principles are all completely solid and found fundamental and wonderfully stated by Mr. Clear Mountain. And uh, I was once uh, very, I was once thrilled to uh, attend a basic session of his and uh, took very careful note of the things he was doing and uh, had the opportunity to ask him some questions. And it was a great privilege to me to be exposed to his incredible expertise. Uh, for those who don't know, Bob Clearmountain engineered and mixed m almost all the early chic material amongst many, many other things before ah. he became co-producer of Brian Adams and doing all of that kind of thing. Uh, Bob uh, started, I believe, at Media Sound in New York with a bunch of guys who I sort of also know and then moved to the power station when Tony Bon Jovi opened it and, uh, like I said, was Sheik's engineer for many years. Ah, so he's he's responsible for those sounds, those those strings and those... And the, the he recorded and mixed uh, the hits, pretty much, the, the early stuff, you know, um, pretty much the stuff that most people know today that's interesting wow. it's fact with a name like bob clearmountain you expect him not to have a sound you expect to be sort of neutral i don't know why that is it's just a semantics thing but he's very definitely hurt does it's that sort of ability well, to to create that sound feel right well i don't know he's got fantastic ears he's a musician he he brought music skills to the engineering field which i think is a tremendous asset when you can do that um Ah, do you think do you think that's partly one of do you think that's one of the one of those reasons? Because I mean, in many ways, you know, the old school engineers were, you know, I'm talking of you know maybe the 50s and 60s up into the 70s were probably more uh, classically educated in terms of the science of audio rather than the musicality of it. There was a um, tradition that was passed through an apprenticeship program that people were privileged to get to be part of, where they learned from their uh, elder elders and their peers and uh, worked cooperatively together in an environment. All of that, for the most part, is gone from our creative process these days. And people uh, who want to do that have to go to schools that are often being taught by guys who haven't done it a whole lot. And um, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's, it's true. Totally and, true um, yeah. and the whole apprenticeship thing, like, uh, Bob Clearmountain came up in the sort of the heyday of that sort of thing. Um, I came up at the very end of that sort of thing, I think. And then studios started to become more localized as gear became more ubiquitous and the home studio became something yeah. that everybody wanted to have. So you didn't get to see what, you know, Bruce Swedeen was doing on Tuesday and what, you know, uh, Humberto Gattaca was doing on Thursday and what, you know, Bob Clearmountain was doing on Friday. You didn't get that kind of exposure like you used to get in the old studio business which yep. does exist in some level in some places but it's just not nearly as widespread as it used to no be. that's true yeah that's very true 
Uh, Mark, I mean, you were working in studios yourself. I mean, was more of your stuff kind of behind the scenes rather than the recording stuff, or do you get to record things like drum kits or whatever? Was that part is or and is that part of your being part of your remit? I have recorded drum kits, but my basic idea of a drum kit is that a drum kit should sound like a set of drums, and I I've always thought that it sounds good to put a single uh, large diaphragm condenser mic way in front of the kit and then if you want to bolster the kick and the snare you stick something in the kick and then you stick something on the snare so i guess this would be this is very much how i think you should record a drum kit except he's using two large diaphragm condenser mics and doing it in stereo and i guess i learned to do that from ken scott because ken scott sticks u87s on all the toms and then puts two above the kit really on all the toms as well like bang next to the bloody tom rim and i I was saying to him what happens if the drummer hits it hits that mic it's that's a two grand mic and he's like well we'll just have to rent another one (laughs) (laughs) okay and then you know two above us overheads and then two in the room for the room mic so he's got something like eight or ten u87s on a kit which is an interesting sound a huge sound yeah, and I know also that it was interesting that Bob Clearmountain kind of cited some of his early influences because he was definitely one of mine. Hmm. And in terms of, uh, I worked in a in recording studios as a MIDI programmer, I guess, except it wasn't really MIDI as a drum programmer, I suppose. Um, I was using a Roland MC two hundred two, which was clocked to an S to Simpty with an SBX eighty, and I made a sampler. I could say out of chewing gum and string, but it wasn't. It was out of a Sinclair ZX Spectrum. And I think it was down to the fact that I'd sampled all of Bob Clearmountain's snare sounds that people preferred the sound of my sampler <laughs> to the Prophet 2000 that they had in that. Because the, the engineer, Martin something, I can't remember his surname, was using a Prophet 2000 and a BBC B Micro. And I was programming all the beats on an MC202 using like graph paper. <laughs> yeah, but essentially, a lot of Aspergers probably. But yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, but, but I sampled the snares that I sampled were things like anything off, uh, like David Bowie's "Let's Dance." I think ah, the "Let's Dance" snare. Clearmountain had some. Clearmountain had something to do with that. NXS had some really good snare sounds. I'm pretty sure he had something to do with that. Simple Minds. There was some Simple Minds drum sounds which are just like out of this world and and uh, if i remember right they're bob clearmountain snare the bob clearmountain snare so when they brought out that bob clearmountain kind of sample pack of drums i was probably like you know at first in the queue to buy it because the bob clearmountain snare was that's what we all talked about it was like you know various different vocal sounds or people's kick sound or whatever but it was always the bob clearmountain snare that's just the way i remember it yeah interesting stuff um uh, gaz you've actually uh i mean you do quite a lot of recording i know you're 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 a fan of the glenn johns technique right oh absolutely i mean i i just hate doing close micing now i used to always you know fixate on that way of working but i just i kind of hate it now i'm (laughs) it's just too I just have just too many issues to deal with. So I think using the best mics and I do mic it. I do measure it with a tape measure from the snare. I've not done it from the tom. So I'm going to try that next time, I think, just out of, just to, out of interest. But um, I just 
uh, I, I think there's so many decisions and so many things going on in a mix that just to have multiple mic drums just adds to the dilemmas and confusion really and sometimes and for some material you, you know you do need that close mic sound but I just love early 70s stuff it's my favorite stuff and I love the way drums sound yeah, that's absolutely. what I aspire to try and to try and do and I'll tend to do just a three mic or even two mics as well I just like a single overhead and a, and a kick drum <laughs> it's just like oh yeah. you can make the drums so fat and so full and satisfying uh, and, and how, um, how would you treat those mics i mean because obviously with a multi-mic kit you tend to compress the room mics or whatever you may do how would you then process those mics parallel compression on the uh, well on both mics really um uh and just try and yeah I'll squeeze it a lot with the compression and then use a blend of that to try and find the the sweet spot. Um, but I mean, you know, as I say, I listen to the Glyn Johns, the, the tracks, for instance, that, you know, maybe Glyn Johns has worked on and, uh, and it still is the sound that makes me excited. I like the, I think it's a, you know, the listener doesn't hear the drums, the listener hears the drums just in in one hit really you know and when you've got multiple mics you're giving a really confused image to the it's the not listener. just it's not just that though you're shrinking their entire world view because if you think about the electrical distance between things electricity travels like in an instant there's no time for it getting from the end of the microphone to the tape or oh, no hang on we don't use tape from the end of the yeah. microphone to the digital audio workstation. There's no time delay in that. But if I stand in a room, there's a huge time delay between the snare and the toms and all those things, depending on how big the kit is. I mean, if it's like gongs and things. Yeah. You know. But I mean, basically, you're taking the physical size of the kit and it's like going, you know, squashing it into this tiny little space because, because of that. So unless you... Are Unless you deliberately put delays on things to try and open the size of that thing out, which is what I've watched a lot of engineers tend to like put little tiny delays on things and try and recreate a sense of stereo space. But if you don't do that, you just end up with a tiny sounding little kit. Interesting. Well, if you employ the principles whereby the more distant mics like the overhead mics, which can't be that far away, and a couple of close mics like a kick and a snare are basically running your sound and everything else you've got, a hi-hat mic, a tom-tom mic, anything else you set up is a spot mic to be used as sparingly as possible, more to localize the sound of that item in the stereo space than specifically to provide the tone on which you're going to rely to present that sound because what you really want to present when you're recording something is the air around the thing more than the yeah. thing. Oh, and okay. to speak yeah. to Mark's point, you, you never put your ear that close to a drum. You never put your ear that close to a cymbal. Things don't sound like that. So the reason you're using them is to create a hyper-reality, and you use them as sparingly as possible in order to exaggerate that hyper-reality without losing the depth that you've so carefully honed in the overhead relationship to the kick mic, especially as regards phase. And the whole yep. thing about the minor, the small amounts of delay that you were describing, it's funny. The guy who taught me how to do all this stuff in the early 80s um, used to bemoan the fact 
that the phase switch on the console was a hard 90 degrees in and out, and it wasn't a knob where you could gradually adjust the phase of any given right, input right. source against the other ones, right. which is essentially the same thing that you're describing right, by using yeah. varying amounts of small delay. I think, unfortunately, that the delays that were at our disposal at the time were not precise enough nor small enough to really yeah. handle those kinds of right. uh, timing issues that you're, you're describing. That's interesting. There's another way of looking at it. You could look at recording a drum kit a little bit like the way that LA synthesis works, that you've got partials. So your uh, your close mics are your attack partials, and your room mics are your envelope are your decay partials. And and if you mix and you think about it like you're taking the attack and you've got to blend it into the decay. Then, then that sort of tends to work. And I think people who close mic drums tend to turn the attack up way too loud, and then they think of the delay. Uh, they think of their decay or their room mics as being the reverb. So they try to get the sound with the close mics, and then they and then they go, "Oh, let's add a little bit I, of I, natural I, reverb yeah, 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 to yeah. this by bringing in the room." It's completely the wrong way to do it. You you build the sound of the drums by using the room, and then you add some like detail by bringing in the attacks and then you can use the attacks to trigger off other things as well maybe you're going to trigger off some samples on the snare or whatever but right you know that that's surely the way to do it oh rich is muted <laughs> oh uh, people who have come to it from live sound reinforcement yeah that's where i came to it will yes. tend to emphasize what mark has just yeah. described because on stage that's sort of what you have to do you can't yeah. rely on your overheads that way because everybody's in the overheads so you can, you don't have a drum sound in the overhead you've got the whole stage in the yeah. overheads and the only way you're going to get drum sounds is through the close mics and it is what it is and you make what you can out of it so guys who approach it the way mark is just describing quite often came to it from a live sound reinforcement background where that's sort of just what you had to do yeah no i i know that's my i'm totally guilty about that uh, incidentally uh, uh rich i think um you just caused a lot of people to have a drink in the chat room there i think there's yeah. the rich's mic is <laughs> muted game <laughs> so there's going to be a lot of people drunk either early in the morning or or in the middle of the day depending where you are in the world people uh, are betting on me now the one thing that's really interesting about this is um bob clement talks about the way that the symbols were because he says that modern symbols are much heavier and louder generally speaking so what they they did is they they tape up the symbols a little bit so that they're not quite as loud so the hi-hat isn't quite as loud in the kit so you get a, ba a balance so you're talking about mechanical positioning mechanical damping those sort of things which you know is 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 really interesting as well so i think the balance of the kit is what is also because presumably the kit that you require for a studio session where you're maybe biking in overheads is different to the one that you would require for a live kit where maybe the symbols need to be either louder or have a, a purer fundamental for the ride or whatever it may be so that's really interesting i don't know well, whether that's you know a valid point but sorry another so um, oh, i'm sorry mark Another uh, thing Claremont emphasized with <laughs> Chamberlain was the tuning of the drums yeah. and the care and presentation of the drums. So basically, if it doesn't sound good in the room, there's nothing you're going to do with microphones to make it sound great. So it has to start with the source yeah. as everything, pretty Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Yeah, he, he did use those immortal words, the black beauty snare, which uh, I think everybody <laughs> guessed. Yeah, but it, it was is, more about how yeah. they tuned it, all the experiments with tuning yeah. that they yeah. had done and how yeah. exactly they were damping certain aspects of it. And they, they both have given this a lot of time and thought. Yeah. yeah. 
That's what we want. I mean, the, I mean, the one a lot thing... of people use in the re- in the recordings these days. They they don't really care about it. They close mic everything, and then they use drum replacement tools afterwards. And I'm getting yeah. really sick of this way of working. Well, I don't work this way, but I, I can hear it. And there's this horrible, modern, generic production sound going on. And I know that a lot of producers work that way because... It's they quicker. Just, yeah. it, it's quicker. Yeah, it's much but quicker. It's... But the, the bottom line is you've got to listen to the thing that you're recording and people don't. And it's a little bit like... And then the analogy I'm going to use is that I can't really draw and I like to think that I can draw. So I see something and then I try and draw it. But I look at it once and then I sit there trying to reconstruct it on paper and then it invariably just looks rubbish. If I if I knew how to draw and people who know how to paint, they stand there and they look at the thing and then they put it on paper. They actually put what they're seeing, not what they think they're seeing. And I think the problem in studios is people put people record what they think they can hear and they don't actually listen to what they're recording at all. So if they use their ears and listen to the kit before they started and listen to what was there and then mm. taped up things and fixed all the mechanical problems yeah. first, oh, God. and then recorded the kit, they'd get a lot further. I, I remember those sessions where you're going into the studio and there's a kit and the squeak of the stool and the, the yeah. you know, there's all those kind of things you've got well, to try usually, and hide. You know, a good engineer's got a bloody great big reel of gaffer tape and a box of tissues. And what? And I, um, I beg your pardon. Go around sticking things on things. Yeah, until it all works. There was that funny kind of gel that used to sort of flop onto to uh, drum skins that kind of helped damp them. Yeah. What was it? Blue gel? Did you say? Moon gel. Moon gel. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Uh, but uh, it, you know, um, like I completely agree with what Rich was saying and what and and the men, and the thing in that video about getting the drums tuned right and. Um, uh, and actually, getting the drums to sound right in the room might involve Quite moving the drums, moving the drums around to find where those particular drums sound best in that room. Um, there's yeah. a really, really cool, cool book called "Mixing with Your Mind" by um, a guy called Stav. He was um, George Martin's engineer. It's a brilliant book. It's full of really interesting ideas, and he advocates the the floor tom method as a way to position the drum kit and what that means is you just simply walk around the room banging away on the floor tom there we go mixing with your mind.com that's one yeah it's a great book that and and you hit the floor tom and you walk around and you listen to where the floor tom sounds really great where it sounds thick and full and you know it sounds and it's amazing because you move it around Oh, his well, his reasoning is if you position your drum kit around where the floor tom sounds best, it'll generally sound pretty good. Uh, that that's quite a good way of um, uh, position, you know, choosing a starting point. Uh, his other thing, which I think is really cool, that's influenced me a lot, is this idea that he keeps uh, he keeps pushing this idea that um, we tend to think that a microphone is like a camera that that you position it and it sees the sound. But he uses the analogy that a microphone is more like a pipette sampling the sound at, at that position rather than, you know, pointing it. And, you know, so you can sort of like if you take the theory that it's a, a camera and I think a lot of people, I, I think it's more natural to approach it like a camera, that you point the mic like a camera and that therefore it's filming the sound. But yeah. if you think about it as a pipette sampling the air, you know, because of the way that you know, the sound isn't just coming from the source, it's reacting to the room. So sampling yeah. the air. I think it's just a very it's a very good way of creating that 
difference. And uh, yeah, and and it does mean go to the ears rather than the eyes. And the camera analogy tends to favour, you know, well, that looks Visual, like it's in yeah. the right place. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. it's a really that's a really good idea. And I think exactly. you know the, the thing is when you're starting a recording session, unless you do have that kind of experience and time on your hands, one tends to be a bit rushed in that because you sort of know more often than not the drums are the things that t- tend to be the largest amount of time to set up and get all right and all of those things and there's there's an i guess there's an aspect of kind of rushing and, and i think we've talked about this before where people using sort of uh, drum replacement techniques just go well that's fine it'll go over there because everybody else will fit around it we'll replace them anyway it doesn't matter you know and, and that's kind of my 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 favorite formula for recording drums if i had to record drums is to um take ask the studio assistant what they think needs to happen to make it sound good because invariably they've worked in that studio a lot they've seen all the different methods and they know far more about it than i do yeah well it was the same when i was doing live sound you just kind of go well you work here what what should i do why don't you if you just do the line check uh, i'll i'll do the when i know the delays need to go and uh and all that sort of thing Although yeah, it doesn't it work, sense though, doesn't it? Only it's, works in clubs of a certain size. You don't get there. Usually, what happens now is if there's uh, if there's a uh, if you go to a, a small venue, there really isn't the engineer there hanging about because they don't want to pay him. So it'll be the mics are in there. This is the key to the mixing desk, or you bring your own stuff in, and and there you go. But. Uh, that, fascinating stuff i think the chat room have responded well to that thank you very much for that brain dump from you all um now for something completely different <laughs> swing low swing low sweet coming forward to can't take any more of that it's it there's something about that that just kind of really blew me away that was the sound of the roland vp 550 by i've i had to dig on this because there's lots of videos people have posted of a chap called don lewis who is clearly a, a gifted gospel musician in fact i think he's on his website he's billed as the um organist uh, or as an organist um uh, i'll just throw his website up here but that is such an articulate and beautiful render i mean if all vocoder demos were like that you'd all go yeah i'll have one of those and <laughs> i mean i would anyway i don't know how often you need one but just in terms of you know i if i if i had to hire five backing vocalists and i or i could have him and that thing doing some some of it certainly perhaps live I, I probably consider my options i don't know i thought that was beautiful myself and that the, the whole tune is amazing if you go to his website there's actually a couple of other ones in there uh, uh which also feature the vp550 which is uh what the roland sort of new breed of roland vocoders which bizarrely is actually now discontinued and i can't find anywhere on ebay or anything any record of ever having one having been sold and it's quite bizarre <laughs> i don't know why that is i don't know um vocoders are uh, uh, they have a limited amount of use, I guess, but uh, 
used like that, they might be used a little bit more frequently. I don't know. What do you think, Rich? It's be- amazing demo. I mean, the guy clearly knows how to arrange vocal chords, as it were. It was stunning. Well, I'm not surprised he's an organist because he voices chords like an organist. And uh, if they sell that thing with all of that harmonic knowledge, then it's a really good deal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, he was that was totally enjoyable. And yeah, I, I'm surprised you didn't uh, fast forward to the D-beam where he was dive bombing the choir with the D-beam, with the D-beam down an octave. That was really cool. Yeah, I, he, I, I, he I did think about it. the whole choir sound down an octave with the, as he brought his hand down on the D-beam. But th- that's an example of someone who is so musically articulate that he could, or you could just, he could do sort of you, almost anything, you know. It just felt like, wow, that's that's awesome. I don't know. I, and I, um, we did have it in the show notes last week, and I know Mark Doty said it was, he, you know, he was almost in tears. He said it was one of the most beautiful things he'd heard for a long time. And there's something about the joy of the effortlessness of the way that that he did that that really kind of blew. I don't know, Gaz. You look, you look like you might not be about to agree, but I could be wrong. <laughs> no, no I, I, a friend of mine uses one of those in i think it's 550s it's got in the in the egg uh the band the egg uh-huh. um and i think they're really cool things because they were quite pricey when they came out and they didn't have a huge amount of function so it's, well, it's like a kind of string section and then there's the kind of vocal section um it has some sort of a sequence or a looper in it as well as far as i could tell but I, there was no there was a bit light on uh, details it was more the performance i think yeah, it might not be the same model, but um, the thing that's nice with those those keyboards, though, is that kind of per, you know, it's very purposed. And and seeing that chap, it's like, yeah, he's he's the reason they made it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, now I've got the uh, T. I got the TC Helicon Voice Live here, which can sort of do the same sort of thing, um, but it really I'll does. I bet it can. I'll bet it can if you gave it to that guy. It could yeah, absolutely. But that was the, the point I was going to say is that it is difficult to do it, to do it really well, to hold the pitch with your voice. While that, hearing all that other stuff around you. Yeah, you know, ah. and that guy is a, that guy is, is excellent at it. But, it, you know, it's one of these things. If If we just focused on our instruments a little bit more and not get so distracted, I'm... I'm really talking about myself here um you know <laughs> I, I i i'm always achieving a certain level of competence or, or maybe a, a low level of competence perhaps <laughs> with some of this equipment and and its potential is so amazing and seeing that guy i'm just going oh i'm gonna i'm gonna be going on my my little doobry later and see if uh, you can come uh, up with some of that sort of stuff <laughs> yeah but but you know he's obviously really 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 good at it and i think he probably has practiced a lot oh yes i'm sure you know and but what's interesting is the other demos that you see of Okoda's, generally speaking you know are are, are very generic and that's the first one i've seen that i, I found the product page they've still got a product page for it um but uh, sadly there's no uh, 128 voice polyphony there's just no sign of it anywhere and i don't know whether it was a i seem to remember seeing I think there was a chap called Ed Diaz, who's one of the roller guys. He's currently doing some stuff on the JDXI and sort of beats and bass lines with a, with a R&B artist, um, a kind of more informal kind of video that Roland are doing. But yeah, it's great. Uh, Mark is coming in there. I would hazard a guess, and it's probably a pretty good guess, that this uh, piece of technology is going to be exactly the same 
as the VC2 vocal designer that's in the V synth because it sounds a bit like it. There's a, a there's a slight anomaly on the edge of the of the retuned sounds that sounds really similar to that vocal designer. Um, and it says on there, doesn't it? If you look at your product page that you've just found, it says vocal designer seven tones. So I'm guessing that. Or it's it it's almost uh, yes. certainly going to be the same as what's in the V6 V synth XT, which is the rack mounted version of the V synth. The V synth came with a card called a VC2 uh, vocal designer, and you could plug this PCM CIA card in the back of the V synth, switch it off, switch it back on again, hold down a button, and it would turn into pretty much the same as this uh, uh, vo uh, vocoder. It turned it into a vocoder. So I'm guessing it's probably the same thing. So if you can't find a VP550, maybe it's uh, ah okay. So there might be something else. A rack mounted, uh, the rack mounted VSIM with a XT. with a with a uh, a MIDI input. Gaz, does the um, TC Helicon stuff take a MIDI input? How many voices does it do though? Uh, it does. It can do uh, four part harmony, but each of those voices can be um, like a, a choir voice, which can be four parts but but in the same the same uh, note so essentially it sounds like uh, i think it's 16 people it, it can sound like singing but as a four-part harmony ah right um uh, uh and each of those voices each and, of those four they could be different you know you could have two women and two uh, men. okay so you can voice it andy v, andy keys in the chat room uh welcome uh, if you haven't seen andy keys uh, you could check out uh uh, synth jam on instagram he is a source and a font of very much breaking news quite often um the the current one is the vp770 which looks a bit more substantial i wonder what that's uh what that's going to cost uh let's have a look roland uh, vp770 i'm guessing this technology is probably not the cheapest yeah it's uh, according to uh G google it's uh uh 1500 quid so it's gonna be a couple of thousand bucks but there's also the vp7 which looks like it could be interesting what's that i don't know i, I vocoders uh, i mean we're you we're used to i guess we're used to see vocoders are generally speaking these days used as sort of daft punk-esque kind of stuff craft worky and you know that kind of stuff less uh, you know more uh, obviously th synthetic than this sort of more musical and soulful approach and i just thought wow what an awesome demonstration anyway but um, yeah, more more love for vocoders. I I I, I hope that uh, I know Dave Spears' uh, um, good wife is is really freaked out by them for some reason. It's it's funny, isn't it? There's some things that some sounds that really don't some people don't agree with, and she really doesn't like those for whatever reason. Um, okay, right. What else have we got? Um, oh, I was going to come back to this kind of this. Um, super clean uh vocal sound which was again a sort of more of an engineering thing and i was going to come to you rich because i've been listening to, i was doing a bunch of listening recently and i i happened to be listening in a place where that i had some small speakers that were kind of quite far away so it was almost background and i just sort of struck me as like there was an enormous amount of emphasis on the vocals as we know obviously but the it just seemed like it's become such a front and center thing as more and more certainly in modern r&b stuff and hip-hop instrumentation is just dropping away and it's all about the vocal and it's it, it, it must be introducing some really kind of difficult challenges um, certainly in the recording and the mixing side of things just purely because headphone bleed and maybe the original track was recorded with more music that was coming in that they stripped away to to, to kind of 
bring the modern production techniques to that particular tune, which may have started life elsewhere. And I just thought, well, how on earth is that achieved? I know Rich, because American vocal production has always been, to my ears anyway, certainly when I was working in pop music, really sort of hyper um, studied and much more um, uh, scientific, perhaps, than the way that the UK certainly at the time I was working, went to, to that was more about the feel and the vibe and thing. And it's like, yeah, that'll be fine. It just captured the moment. Whereas because of this new need for naked vocal and very little else, what those challenges must be quite... Uh, are, are you finding that you're having to think about the way you record vocals to, to be able to think, well, that might be how I have to present it later on? Oh, somebody gets another drink. <laughs> <laughs> Strike two. <laughs> I've always thought that way. Okay. I mean, it's you use different methods and it's a different world and you're going to have to present something different. But in terms of the capturing, you still have to capture everything well enough to be able to make what you want out of it. And actually today, it's much easier to manipulate the level of something after it's been recorded without destroying it than it was back in the old analog tape days. So, And furthermore, you have umpteen options, whereas back then you probably had five tracks left to record vocals to. So, um, um, you know, uh, now what, now to speak to your original point about the vocals riding over the mix the way it is and everything else starting to sound small, I chalk this up to uh, dynamics processor abuse in the extreme. And uh, I'm throwing, you know, in an American football analogy, flags on the play quite often when I listen to the way records are being done that way. But, by the same token, I understand the appeal of having the vocal ride over a mix that hopefully doesn't sound small behind it because ultimately you're trying to emphasize the personality of the storyteller, however right. disposable they may be in this day and age of marketing. But nevertheless, you've got this particular storyteller and you may or may not get more than two singles out of her. So you're going to try to make sure our shit, their stuff is laid way clear over that track so that uh, you get as much personality out of the deal as possible. And I guess that's artistically the motivation. But allowing the track to sound small is something I can't bring myself to do. It's interesting, though, um, the way... That you... Except you want to do it as a sure. dynamic contrast. Sure, in other words, sure. where you're striving to create that dynamic contrast. But, I mean, just as a point of you know, order. <laughs> you don't want the chorus to show up and the whole track set. The band sounds like, you know, tiny and the voice is the whole deal. It can't be. It's, it's, be it's right. interesting you say that. I mean, I, I also recall some of the extreme process because I remember first time I think I went to a studio, worked with an engineer who was EQing stuff. I was really surprised at how, uh, how much processing went on the vocal, you know, maybe the, uh, the, the massive emphasis there is on sort of super air top end around things, which you hear a lot. Um, it's probably coming down because, you know, obviously as you kind of get the MP3, MP3 sample rates, you know, you're not hearing the 15 K. So you have to do it at six K or f whatever. I was wondering about those kind of EQ techniques that bring out that sort of amazing, amazingly detailed presence i mean it's just it, it, it i don't eq vocals that much right i mean it may be after they're recorded but certainly not on the way in oh no i wasn't i wouldn't suggest on the way in a good microphone sure but 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 yes you often have to brighten up vocals to speak over that cacophonous mess you've got underneath him <laughs> yeah do you think that the the, the mixing has changed in in that respect Push the up, push the vocal has Everything to be. about mixing has changed. A friend of mine once characterized it as in the old days, uh, 
uh, it was nothing louder than anything else, and now it's everything louder than everything else. Oh, that's um, an interesting idea. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it just, yeah, everything has got to sound loud now. I mean, we've been talking about that now for decades, but it's just to an extreme now where everybody's got huge squash tools that they use, you know, to mm. try to be louder and louder and louder. I know, Gaz. You, yeah. Sorry. No, it's all right. I, I know, Gaz, you've had a few dabblings with uh, pop production in the, in the past. I mean, do, do you find that the pressure to make that vocal as as front and centre as it possibly can be is is difficult to achieve. I mean, it's because I mean those are the, the the different different set of maybe what you would feel or emotionally for something, you have to treat it differently and go well. Actually, this needs to be done this way for this purpose. Well, I mean, with pop music, you can you can totally make the backing all around the vocal. You know, you can you can you know your whole approach to the backing can be. You know, the, the vocal is in charge. If you're recording a band and that band is used to sort of playing loud, that vocalist is normally just about heard, you know, in their rehearsal rooms and everything, that vocal's just about heard. So the whole dynamic of the sound of that band is, is you know, is... Um, I was working to the vocal, giving it some room. Well... Or not. <laughs> well, when if you're producing a band rather than pop, then, you know, each of those band members wants to be, you know, featured and it, it, and it wants to sort of resemble the band playing live, I guess. Whereas with pop music, you just don't have the same political <laughs> issues. You, you know, you really can just sort of adjust everything to give the vocal its full priority and um yeah I, when i've done pop with the pop music it's when it comes to mixing the mixing process tends to be just taking things away taking things away taking things away and creating as much uh you know making the vocal have as much space as possible um you know and and because you're not having to keep those band members well i'm talking about right pro produced pop yeah yeah no working. that's interesting so it's, so creating that is reductive a reductive process yeah reductive process and you don't you know that because the the in pop music you know the vocal and the melody you know the hooks is so paramount it, you know it's such a different it's such a different discipline to working within than working within rock music or you know hmm bands band world maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know I, I, and i just tend to push things out in pop music to the sides acoustic guitars whatever ah, right okay. hard hard panned um getting the bass really thick and big and then the vocal sitting on top of that and uh yeah it's, I, I like it. I like mixing pop, actually. I think it's really It's good quite fun. challenging, I think, yeah. Uh, Mark, what are your thoughts? I mean, I, one of the things for me is, with all of this technique, obviously the problem of then representing those records live, or those, those pieces live, where there is practically no supporting pitched instruments for the vocal, vocalist to work off, must be an absolute bloody nightmare. Even No matter how great a vocalist you are, you must have to create all sorts of kind of hidden 
guide tracks so that they can yeah. pitch. I mean, I know, I, I know, I've had to do that in the past for live stuff when some uh, it's a vocal and nothing, you know, and people need to know where they're coming in. It's got to be, yeah, it's got to be easier with in-ear systems because um, you can send click track to a vocalist without them, without anybody else knowing that that's happening. Or a pitching note, that sort of or stuff. A pitch, or a pitching yeah, note, or, or any of it. Yeah, so well, you can... You, I, I'm not sure that it's as much a, a, of a problem as it may at first appear to be. Hmm. But going back to recording uh, vocal vocal tones, I've spent years and years trying to perfect a vocal sound. And what it boils down to is basically me trying to get any microphone that I own to sound like a U47. <laughs> and... Um, I just remember in the like in the 1980s when we when Adam and Seal had that hit and then Seal went off to record various different things. I was working with this guy called Sean Chenery who was also Seal's engineer, um, and we were listening to something and I was like, "Wow, that sounds amazing! How do you get that vocal sound?" And apparently, um, Trevor Horn's idea of a vocal sound is to put a u87 a u87 i think in a room and plug it into a desk and switch off all the eq and record it and that's it and then to present it like that with no reverb and i just think i just i don't know it just it never ceases to blow me away how much work you can do on something to make it sound better and then invariably the thing you started off with was what sounded good in the first place. And the thing that sounds good in the first place and the thing which I can't replicate is Seal's voice, the fact that he can sing and he's got a <laughs> lovely vocal tone and I can't replicate that because I can't there sing. There you go. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm all right in a choir, but on, I, I'm not a solo vocalist and I don't have that vocal tone. Um, and then the same with, I mean, I've, you know... I, I'd forgotten all about that until recently. And the reason I've got this mic here is for this next little story is my friend Robin was, um, she recorded some stuff and she was, uh, she was doing something for Chelmsford uh, community radio and she got stuck. Um, she asked me if I would edit something for her and, and I said, sure, send it over. So she sent me this audio file and I was sitting there editing it and I was thinking, God, on earth she, cause I know she's got logic. So I thought she'd, used like a plug-in strip or something one of the preset ones and got this vocal tone for spoken word so i emailed her and said what have you done to this voice because it sounds really good which channel strip did you use and she said i haven't done anything to it it's just that microphone that i was recording you with or recording uh, uh, yeah it was recording me she recorded me doing an interview and then she couldn't couldn't edit it um so she'd sent uh so i said I had to find out what the mic was, and it's this Bayer DT100. I, no, it's not. It's yeah, a, that's a stick mic. Whatever that, it is. We use no, those Bayer, for... It's a Bayer 57. That's what it is. It just sounds brilliant. It does sound I've got good. No EQ, I've got no EQ on this, a little tiny bit of compression, and it just sounds like that spoken word vocal sound that I've been trying to get forever. And I don't know if it sounds brilliant because every time you switch the radio on, all BBC engineers are issued with one of these mics in Anagra and they go out and they point it at people and they just record people speaking and so tend it's... not to do that much to it. So we're so used to that sound. And we could say the same about U87s or U47s, similar sort of sound. We're so used to hearing that on rock that, that anything else doesn't quite sound quite right. 
and mm. doesn't quite have the vibe and and until someone throws up a u87 you're just like oh yeah that's the sound or possibly a 414 but i i think um, i know i think i know what you mean actually that's definitely uh, there, there's a sort of perceived quality quality you know it's it, it's the same sound that you hear it's, it's a, a familiarity it's a yeah, there's it's a presence people. We like, use oh, we use one of those. Oh, we have used one of those as a stick mic uh, for our you know because they're reporter mics because they're thin enough. You put you put one of those kind of collars on. It's around here somewhere, um, and it yeah. definitely does sound good. Rich, there are a lot of uh, boutique mic companies these days replicating early circuit designs and making really really wonderful products that will compete with the kinds of microphones Mark is talking about. Um, and I will tell you that in our studio, I have uh, retired, at least for the moment, the U48 in favor really? of a recently purchased microphone, tube microphone that I found that is made entirely in this country by some guy who lives about, I don't know, 100 miles from here. And it just sounds magnificent. And right. uh, everybody who has sung into it has commented on how wonderful and clear and warm it sounds. Are you going to tell us what it is? Yeah, it's a Charter Oak 530A. I've heard of the Charter Oak stuff. Actually, I think I might have seen them at uh, it, various it, trade shows. Uh, it, it's a wonderful sounding microphone. And it comes. it's not terribly expensive. And it comes in a beautiful case with a shock mount and a power supply and a cable. And it's all, it's it's beautiful. It's really nice, and it's like I said, it's not. Um, there's also a lot of rebranding of Chinese microphones that's going on by a lot of people, some of whom are my friends. And this ain't that. This is a really, really they nicely tend, made microphone. Huh. Hmm? Those Chinese ones tend to be copies of, of various different AKG things, though, don't they? I mean, they're all. I got one over to... here that looks just like a U87 and doesn't. I, I think I tried it on a podcast once uh, with you guys, and it yeah. just everybody was like, nah. <laughs> I think the thing the thing about the, I, I think you're right though, Mark. But the thing because I've tried a, I, I went through a phase of trying a few mics, and th that's why I ended up with this one because it's the 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 dynamic mic just sounds right for spoken word to my ears, and that's what we're used quite to often, hearing. Yeah. Quite often does a, a condenser also tends to pick up a lot more of the air around the place just because it's got a better frequency response and or whatever because it's generally a larger larger diaphragm maybe side address whatever you know so those are the sort of things that uh, that, that make a difference um, I can't believe how late it is we've uh, we've been talking for a while so it's probably time <laughs> to wrap things up but I once again thank you very much for your sort of collective brain dump there it's been uh, really fascinating and I hope the chat room and, and your, our listeners have enjoyed it as much as I have I'm sure they will um, remember you can always leave a comment below and we'll get back to you and if it's the first time you've seen this subscribe this sort of stuff happens every week so uh, once again thank you and also thanks again to our chat room we had a lot of people in the chat room again this week uh, very kind uh, for you to give up your time nice to see Champ there if you haven't seen um, Champ did a great uh, sort of mess of video rap which you can find on our Facebook page I'm going to post it up onto uh, YouTube uh, soon so anyway thanks a lot and I want to say we'll start with you guys thank you very much for joining us this week uh, it's been a pleasure um, as ever Hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, yes, so uh, people disappointed that I'm not displaying any new gadgets. Any new gadgets <laughs> this week? Ah, oh, well, uh, you can't do it every week. week. Next week? Oh, week. right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Some, there's something incoming, so yeah. Ooh, fascinating! Uh, and I've got—I I did order. I've got a Dreadbox Erebus, Erebus uh, <gasps> really? supposed to be coming in June because oh. they're doing some, they're doing some modifications to it, and yep. they want me to have the one that's been modified. But from what I've heard, Ooh. lots of people are very excited that, about those. The oscillators on that just sound 
awesome. I, look I mean, it's a very simple, yeah, simple device, but I just think the raw sound is fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try it because we did post. Uh, Ed posted a fantastic kind of semi-modular. If you're not going to go Eurac, try a semi-modular. And uh, mm. some of those, there were all sorts of headlines I could have used, and I went for the clean version. But uh, there we go. Anyway, and also Mark Tinley, thank you very much for joining us uh, and your hair. Um, and uh, <laughs> and yes, your mic does sound good. So thank you very much uh, for using yeah, it's, it. It's it just it's a no-brainer, isn't it? If you can plug something in that sounds good every time without having to sit there for ages twisting EQs to try and make it sound good, then that's the mic to use. Absolutely, I would I would concur. I'm all full of philosophy and ideas today, aren't I? Yeah, <laughs> excellent. That's what we that's what we want you here for. Anyway, and also Rich Hilton, thank you very much for joining us too. Uh, been a pleasure to have your knowledge on those subjects. Uh, always good to pick your brains on the recording and those kind of things. And I hope uh, you have a great week coming up too. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Right. Okay. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, thanks very much for watching. Remember, subscribe to the podcast. And again, if you want to enter the Isotope competition, you just need to tweet uh, the hashtag finalize the mix with a Z and ozone six to at Sonic Day and at Isotope Inc. Remember, there are 140 characters in a tweet, so you can put some other stuff in there too. We're happy to read it. Anyway, that's all for this week. Thank you very much. See you later.